I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In today's episode, we're talking about the last four months. Virus, racism, statues, it's pandemic palooza! Right, y'all. I don't know if you heard about the story, but it's pretty terrible. There was a butcher who accidentally backed up into his meat grinder. Yeah, he got a little behind on his work. But welcome to episode seventy-four, friends. Pandemic Palooza. We're going to talk about all things over the past four months uh, by someone who is not at all an expert, but just has some thoughts about Jesus and. Christianity and what it means to live in the world today in the midst of all this craziness. You know, we haven't talked too much about some of the issues and things that have come up, so I thought it'd be good to just look back and look ahead and see what we've learned. But before that, let's do our peak pit plug. Peak pit plug. It's my little audio. Anyway, um, peak for these past couple weeks. Um, praise the Lord, all of my tests and um, things with the hospital, all of my exams, tests, labs have all come back great. So I've had some minor little deficiencies here and there, but nothing indicating anything major going on or anything dangerous. Um, so all of that is clear and taken care of, um, and that has been really good peace of mind for me. So praise the Lord. Thank you so much for your prayers and your continued prayers for my health. Um, because with all of that being said, I know that kind of the episodes that I was having over these past few weeks have been for sure related to anxiety. And so, um, that kind of goes into my pit that I've had a lot of experiences this past week or two where I have just been made to feel very small or insignificant or weak or incapable. And it's been, it's been really, um, challenging and I've tried to see them all as an opportunity. My spiritual director has really encouraged me anytime I receive something like that to just say, Lord, thank you for this gift. I was reminded when we had the feast day of St. Jose Maria Escriva of a quote where he said, uh, don't say this person annoys me, say this person sanctifies me. So every annoying situation that has come up, I, I thank God and I say, thank you, God, for allowing this in some way, shape or form to sanctify me, even if I can't see how. And so um, all of those moments of smallness have been very humbling, and um, a lot of them have been related to that and going back to work and, um, yeah, and some other variety of things. But um, it has been a pit in one sense, um, but it's been good otherwise. Another pit is, you know, we've been gardening a lot, and I've had to fight off infestations of caterpillars, ants, and wasps. Um, wasps were unrelated. There was a nest like that we found on the, on the eve of our home. But I think that I have successfully, um, won the wars of all of those creatures. <laughs> so in the most humane ways possible. Um, so yes, praise the Lord for that. But, um, it was seeming like thing after thing after thing. And, you know, we had it looked like one of the kitchen cabinets in our kitchen was falling off the ceiling and there's all these little things going on. So, but praise God, all of that is fixed or getting fixed. And so anyways, my plug 
I mentioned that we are gardening. Um, we've been doing this form of composting called, called Bokashi, uh, B-O-K-A-S-H-I. And it's like self-composting. You don't have to stir it. You don't have to um, you know, worry about it. You can leave it for a little while. You just put all of your food trash in there. And then you put this Bokashi kind of material over it in layers. And it just kind of, um, it basically pickles and becomes pre-compost. And then you mix it with soil and bury it. And then after two weeks, you can plant. And so it's a very easy way to start composting and to get in the habit of gardening more and stuff. So... Um, and even if you totally fail and it gets moldy and rank, there's ways to fix it. Like it's just like foolproof. So anyway, um, we've been doing that. So I want to plug Bokashi composting. If you're interested, let me know and I can answer questions. But also there's a really cool app that my wife just showed me called Seek, not affiliated with the Focus Seek conference, which you should check out if you're a young adult, but, um, it is a gardening and wildlife amp app that you can just hold your phone up to a plant and it does like crazy good at identifying things. I've seen a lot of other apps out there that try and they're pretty terrible. Um, but this just, I don't know what technology it uses, but it's free. It's called Seek and it's a little green leaf, I think is the icon. So just want to plug that super awesome. And third plug, I just finished the Chronicles of Narnia series reading through it over the past couple weeks. And it was really awesome to read through that. I've never read through that series. So if you've never checked it out, um, yeah, you should. So there's seven books, and they've made movies out of books two, four, and five, or two, four, and six, something like that. So there's a whole bunch of random things in between that you don't know about. So yeah, highly recommend it. They're super easy to read because uh, they're kids' books. So anyway, that was a long peak pit plug. But um, this episode, 74... Um, we are talking about the pandemic, and I just want to thank all of you who, it's been 74 episodes, almost 75 episodes next time, and I want to thank all of you who've hung in there from the beginning, those who've joined us along the way, especially those of you who financially support the podcast, which you can do for as little as a dollar a month on manafoodforthought.com, and please make sure if you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. If you just rated it, please leave a review. It helps people find it. And the highest compliment you can pay us is to share this podcast with a friend, especially on social media, um, or tell other people you know about it if it's helped you in any way. Uh, we love hearing your feedback. Send us questions. Send us your feedback. If you think we're heretics or you disagree with something we said or you want to take the conversation further, please let us know. Email us. We would love to hear from you. So anyways, all that being said, I want to talk a little bit about the last four months. It is July 23rd today. Um, I believe the stay-at-home order in California happened May 20th. So it's been March 20th. I'm sorry. So it's been four, about four months, um, a little over that, since all of this has really kind of hit home. And it was kind of creeping into that type of reality for the weeks prior. But, you know, our whole world has changed and there's been a lot going on. And I thought it might be good for at least us to mention a lot of these things that we haven't talked about and for us to kind of... Uh, for me to give a little bit of a, a Catholic perspective as I see it, um, but also think about what, you know, what what areas of growth is the Lord really offering us right now in the midst of all of this? And I'm sure you've, if you listen to a lot of Catholic podcasts, you probably heard a lot like this. I'm not going to go into the expertise. I'm not going to bring up, you know, any particular current events. I'm just going to talk about things in general and hopefully provide some insight for you and maybe some encouragement to see the other side, because in all of these, there seems to be like one side and another side and very pitted against each other. And I think we could all, especially the Christian perspective, 
could be one that could learn a lot from being more empathetic and uh, more of an active listening approach. And we could really grow in our pastoral strength um, by doing that. So anyways, all that being said, um, you know, four months ago, we were told to stay at home because of this virus, the coronavirus. And it's been really interesting. You know, if you remember all the hoarding, I mean, I was at grocery shopping yesterday and the, you know, paper product aisle is still pretty sparse. There's stuff there, which wasn't happening for a while. But even when I go to Target and our grocery store, um, stuff is coming back. But that in particular, people are still trying to like, you know, seem to get a lot of it, you know. So um, it's just interesting that how that all played out initially, you know, people thinking and still to this day thinking the virus is a hoax. It's um, politically motivated, trying to get people to conform to some kind of, I don't know, like if people are arguing that, maybe you can enlighten me. So if that is happening, what are we meant to believe then? Like how is being cautious of a virus causing you to believe in any political something? I think people think it's politically being used as something against Trump. Um, I don't know. Maybe he's just doing a bad job. That could also be a possibility. I mean, politicians can do bad jobs. You know, um, every politician that I can think of has probably done something that was not great. So anyway, um, but whatever the case may be, um, there there is a virus. There is a virus. It is real. We know that from experts. And I think the thing that really f- freaks me out, not maybe not freaks me out, but almost like it is unsettling that people don't realize it. If this virus were a conspiracy, do you realize it would be the largest global alliance in history? Like every single country, except for maybe like two, I think are like reporting statistics to the WHO. And they're all like doing it in a way where they're acknowledging like there is a virus, we're testing for it, people are dying, like how many people would have to be in on this? Like every doctor, nurse in the world, every epidemiologist, scientist, and I know there are detractors and people saying that there's something to this conspiracy theory or whatever, but it's just like, it. I think it's helpful sometimes to take a moment, take a step back and say, okay, if that were true, what is that, what, what would have to be the environment in which for that to happen, you know, and what would be the implication? And I think this, in a lot of the things I'm going to talk about very briefly, is one of the main things that I think we really can glean from these last four months is that sometimes it is better to just take a step back and critically think about a situation. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about different issues, things I've posted over the past four months, where, I mean, 99% of them is me just trying to tell people, no, what you're saying is a logical fallacy and teaching them how to critically think. Like that, and it's just something, I don't know if it's not taught as frequently or we're just not as skilled in it as a society anymore, but to really look at, okay, what is the argument and what is the evidence being presented for that argument? Or are things just kind of jumping around and emotional statement after emotional statement, sensationalized regurgitation of the echo chamber of media that only I listen to, you know, whatever it is. Uh, Or is it really, here's the argument, here's the analytical approach, here's the evidence, let's have discourse about how to interpret the evidence. Am I interpreting, interpreting it properly? Or am I interpreting it in a way that I'm falling into a logical fallacy? Am I overgeneralizing? Am I making a false correlation? Um, am I saying that this leads to that? Um, am I making a non sequitur? Whatever it is. And if you don't know what those things are, look them up. There's like dozens of logical fallacies. There are about half a dozen to a dozen main ones. Um... But uh, what's interesting is that in the midst of these past four months, there's kind of these like um, inferred fallacies in some um, 
academic circles. And one is called the King Hitler fallacy. I don't know if it's labeled that um, in any place. I kind of label that myself. But uh, people, when they're trying to make an argument that they want people to agree with, they align it with Martin Luther King and uh, Dr. King. And if they are trying to uh, make an argument about something that is bad, they align that argument with Hitler. Um, and so what's funny is I've seen a lot of this. And obviously, a lot of the Dr. King stuff has been because of racism. And that was something he directly quoted. So I wouldn't apply that to most of those situations, because it actually is within the purview of what he was really talking about. It's not as it's not a stretch, you know. Um, and then people bringing up Hitler and all of these like Holocaust type of um, images to what's going on in this country. And that to me is just so probably insulting to Jewish people. Like, Yes, me having to wear a mask is totally the same as people being burned in concentration camps. You know, like, no, that is not at all the same. Like, it's just crazy to me some of the correlations that are being made on any given side of this. So when it comes to the virus, like, I think this has been an opportunity for us to really recognize, like, that we belong to one another. It's a quote from Mother Teresa. If we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to one another. And I haven't seen a lot of peace. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've encountered a lot of people who are really at peace in this situation. And I think it's because we've lost that. We've put up all these walls and boundaries, some of which are necessary. But there are some you know, little windows of connection in those boundaries that maybe we're not opening or maybe we're refusing to create because we're just very walled in and protected behind our own opinion or our own echo chamber of the things that we consume media-wise and just regurgitating that instead of learning how to think critically and hearing the other person's perspective. Um, and so what I hear in a lot of the people who think this is, you know, a conspiracy is fear and is, um, you know, a, a worry about freedom and is a worry about rights being taken away and religion being oppressed and freedom of religion and exercising religion being oppressed. And I get that. I get that that's a real fear. Um, personally, looking at the evidence, I don't think there's any real reason to think that that's actually happening. Like, it's not illegal to be Catholic. Like, you can still practice your faith as it is needed by, you know, the mandates that have been um, brought down for the common good, for the public health. Um, but you're not being infringed in any way from being Catholic. Like, it's not illegal. You're not being, you know, chastised or arrested or, you know, just for being Catholic or any other religion. You know, that is the type of persecution that would come to a place where it's like, okay, yeah, your freedom of exercise of religion is not you know, being respected. This is happening to every denomination, you know, it's just about the size of gatherings and stuff like that. But anyway, I think what we can learn from just the situation with the virus is, you know, um, am I willing to sacrifice my own opinion or my own desire to be right, to listen to the hurt of another person, to listen to their fear? Um, and if not, maybe I need to do that more. If I'm worried more about hoarding and um, isolating myself than I am about looking to my brothers and sisters to see if they're being provided for, maybe God is calling me to be more generous. Maybe God is convicting me in my selfishness or in the fact that I'm, I'm afraid of death because I don't really trust God or I'm not really ready because I have this habitual sin that I'm dealing with. Maybe those are things that this time can really bring to the surface. And the Lord is really speaking to you and me and saying, hey, I want you to pay attention to that thing. I want you to pay attention to this. Another thing over the past four months as a result of the virus has been 
um, mass and religious celebrations, which I was just alluding to, um, and people getting very um, up in arms about things being persecuted and us not being allowed to gather. I've seen a lot of people, you know, bite uh, bite back at the bishops and saying like, you know, why are you being so cowardly? We need mass. We need these things. Um, and, you know, we the sacraments are for our sanctification. And so, um, yes, we need the grace of God that we have from from the sacraments, but that does not outweigh the grace of God that has been given to us by Jesus' death on the cross, and that's offered to us and accepted to us through our baptism. And if baptism is not available, through baptism by blood or by desire, you know. And so the sacraments are not as necessary for our everyday life as people are touting them to be. Like, you're not going to die if you don't get the sacrament. You know what I mean? Your, your salvation is not going to be in jeopardy um, if you don't get that particular sacrament. Um, you know, even with confession, you can make a per- perfect act of contrition if you can't make it, and then you're vowing to make it at your next opportunity. So there are always ways where the Lord's mercy is extended to us in the sense of like divine understanding based on our context. It's not meant to be a loophole or a get out of jail free card, you know, or anything like that, but it's meant to articulate like God is going to come to us in every time and every place, however he can. He's constantly going to be pursuing us. And just because a governor or a city says like, look, we can't gather in this type of large enclosed space because of the ventilation and the way this travels through air particles and respiratory droplets. So we're going to put down this health mandate and uh, we're asking you not to gather. That doesn't mean that we're being persecuted religiously. Could there be some of that going on in the background? Sure, there could be. Do I think that people are waking up every day in government offices with these evil intentions of circumventing religion and making this a religious country? No, I don't think that's happening. And I think any media outlet that is saying that is happening is skewing evidence or is just being sensational. Um, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can send me something. But I don't think any like nothing is preventing you from being Catholic. And what I think we can learn from this kind of tendency we might have to be very latched on to our practicing of our faith is the fact I've mentioned this in previous episodes that I think we can get as Catholics over ritualized and over sacramentalized not to say sacraments are bad we need them we need them in the sense that they help sanctify us but we don't need them because they are our faith or they are our relationship with Jesus like our relationship with Jesus can happen in any time and place. And it's meant to. It's meant to be evolving and deepening and personal. And, you know, it's meant to be happening and growing right now, thriving right now. Even if you're isolated at home, you know, that's the reason there have been hermits in church history and all these people who were totally isolated, um, that they are able to encounter God still. Like your relationship with God is not gone if you can't access the sacraments. And if you are relying on the sacraments as your sole experience of faith, then I I would say that's basically just like being in a loveless marriage where you're just going through the motions. And at the end, you know, of it, are you going to end up realizing like, wow, like, no, I really haven't honored my end of the commitment here. I never really like actually sought the Lord personally and intentionally. And are you going to realize that before it's too late, you know? I know that's something that I was really challenged early on in this is I, I've been saying, you know, like we're all been forced to go face to face with our personal relationship with Jesus in the midst of this, because we couldn't rely on the Bible study, the group that we go to, the church community, the sacraments, the Sunday experience, all of that. 
we we didn't have that crutch anymore and now all we're left all we're left with is okay my personal daily effort to connect with the lord on my own and if that's non-existent then you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You are just often going through the same motions as other people who do in the same place, you know? And that's something that can be very scary to realize, but it can be a really great and beautiful opportunity to grow closer to Jesus in this time. We've also had a lot of this, as I alluded to with the virus, dealing with media and politics and this over sensationalism particularly in these uh, things with racism and um, statues being toppled churches um, you know being damaged um, Sean King one of the influential members or leaders of Black Lives Matter um, saying that white Jesus images of you know or Jesus images of Jesus that are white or of Mary and the Saints that are white I need to be torn down because they're a symbol of you know the the oppressive um, um, kind of white patriarchal or, you know, um, what am I trying to say? Privileged, um, view, um, that religion has of, of, um, the white majority. Uh, I don't know if I articulated that well, but I think you know what I'm saying. Um, all of that kind of coming into the fold and people really, I going to one sense where a lot of the religious people I know just went immediately into defensive mode. And then a lot of other people were just like, yeah, that needs to happen. And maybe a lot of their hateful ideologies about, religion, organized religion, the church, Catholicism in general, really were given a voice to be amplified uh, instead of where that common ground in the middle might be. Um, and so first, like thinking about, you know, just racism in general, um, I, it's, it's amazing to me how terribly the church and Christians, I wouldn't even say the church, because actually I've seen a lot of things from the hierarchy of the church that have been very well done. At least they've spoken about it. They've spoken about it com with compassion. Um, they spoke about it with understanding while not relegating things that are, are untrue, you know, that they've really stood by the truth, but stood by, um, you know, this, the fact that all black lives have dignity, like black life matters. And so if you're someone who hears that, that phrase, Black Lives Matter, and you automatically think of the organization, then you need to stop doing that. Because there are a lot of Christians who want to say that Black Lives Matter, but they keep being told that the second you say that, you are agreeing with everything that that organization says ideologically. And so many of those things are contrary to what the church teaches. And I would agree, but I would say 99% of the time, when Catholics are saying Black Lives Matter, they're not saying, I fully support this organization and everything they stand for. They're saying everyone has dignity and is made in the image and likeness of God, and so black life matters. And in this country, it has, it has typically been treated as though it doesn't matter as much as other lives because black people are disparagingly treated, especially by people in authority, especially by police. And if you don't know that, if you don't think that something like white privilege exists, um, then I would encourage you to talk to someone who was raised black in this country, more than one person, um, and listen to their experience. You know, listen to their experience. What has your experience been like with the cops? How often do you encounter them? Uh, what were things your family, your parents warned you about when you encounter that type of authority? What are things that have happened to your family members? Um, you know, what is it like just walking into a store? You know, I don't think we as white people really realize, like, Black people in this country being a minority, uh, I know there are areas of this country where, you know, it's very heavily um, populated by black Americans, but in most of the country, it's not. And so 
when you go as a black person into a normal establishment, everyone looks immediately at you. Not necessarily initially because they have a racist, you know, intention, but because you're that person's a minority and they stand out, you know, but because of that, just psychological reality. And then a lot of the things that have happened through our history, a lot of the ways that these beliefs or images of what does a criminal look like? What is, you know, um, all of that have been ingrained into our, the way that we've been taught that has developed a kind of like a, a very privileged undertone to what white people experience in this country and a subtle racism toward black people and a lot of other minorities in this country even if you aren't participating in it or don't consider yourself a racist like that is just i think we have to acknowledge that's part of the structure of our country um you know that racism and slavery existed for hundreds of years in this country and then the civil rights movement was only 55 years ago and we think that that fixed everything like no like the the amount of time that this has been deep seated in our country has been way longer. It's gonna take a while, a lot a lot of time and effort and hard conversations and understanding to happen for this to really be fully rooted out. And if we think it already has, and this is just being made into a big deal, um, you know, unnecessarily, then I think um, we're being naive. And so, um, you know, I I just want to say as someone who is Catholic, who is a representative in some way of the church, that we can definitively say as Catholics that black life matters. And we should say it often, and we should believe it, and we should look at the places in our own minds, conversations, beliefs, and behaviors where maybe that hasn't been true in our own life, or in our families or relationships we have where people are struggling with seeing that that needs to be proclaimed. You know, maybe they, they're, they're play, downplaying it. Um, or they're bringing up all of these, you know, police lives who are on the line. And yes, police lives matter too, but they've never been oppressed in such a way in this country for hundreds of years to where they've been told over and over again, directly or indirectly, that they don't matter. And anyone who's a police officer chooses to be a police officer. That's something that people don't realize. I'm not saying that violence should be done against them. I'm not saying they matter less, but I'm saying that's what that means when people say black lives matter or black life matters is a declaration that this type of person, this life has not mattered as much as the rest of us before based on how we treat them as a country, as a system, as a government. And so we want to declare that that is not okay. It's not saying any definitive negative declaration about any other group. And it's not asking or demanding that we give up anything um, that we have legal rights or freedoms to as a different group either. It's just an acknowledgement and a act of solidarity and love for our black brothers and sisters. I've pointed out many times how, um, you know, rare it is to see black Catholics. I mean, they make up, I think, 12% of our country, but only 3% of our church in America. And I'm, su I'm surprised there are that many. Based on the feedback I've seen, the the comments I've seen from a lot of Catholics, especially older Catholics and male Catholics, make in the midst of this issue. Um, the people I've seen the most compassion from are female Catholics, and most of them being young women, young adults, really recognizing, probably for the, the feminine gift of empathy that is more common among women, um, to be able to listen and understand and recognize, yeah, there has been disparate treatment. 
And we have a responsibility as a church, an organization, a religion who says that all people are equal, made in the image and likeness of God, are all tabernacles of God who dwells and lives within them. That we need to recognize the dignity of all people and Jesus dwelling in the life of every single person and be vocal when that is not happening. And so we've seen that happen. We've seen even more um, demonstrations of police brutality at all these different protests and yes, violence back against police, um, neither of which is okay. Um, and I think that's just shows how broken and how afraid we are when we're afraid. And when we're angry, we lash out, we get violent. Um, and I think whatever side you fall on, whatever um, argument you've been making, whatever, however deep seated you've been, in you know your opinion or regurgitating whatever platform or belief that you have about any of these issues, um, I think we owe it to our brothers and sisters on the other side to sit and listen, even if it means I don't get to be right in a conversation, even if it means I don't get to even make a single argument. It's about listening and acknowledging that no matter what anyone else believes, there is some nugget or hidden truth, goodness, and beauty in whatever they're saying. Because even if someone is totally evil, totally sin, or sinful, that all that means is it is a, a deep distortion of truth, goodness, and beauty. But those things cannot, by their nature, be completely absent, or they would cease to exist, because those things are in and of themselves from God. And if God was not infusing that person with being, was not willing them into existence, was not giving some sense of their identity as a child of God created out of his truth, goodness, and beauty, they would just cease to exist. They'd be gone. So there is some kernel of that in every argument and every person and everything. And you may not think that you may think like, you know, that's there's certain issues that no, but I, th I would encourage you to just stretch and think about that. Um, you know, so anyways, I feel like I'm all over the place, but, um, a lot of things have happened. This has also then gone into, you know, conversations about statues and ch churches and statues being toppled down. And, um, you know, I personally, I don't understand the fascination with statues. I just like, I don't know. I just, you know, um, I think they're beautiful in a religious context and, you know, we see them as icons of saints. I like, I, I'm very, very supportive of that. Um, you know, I'm talking more about like civil, like out in the city, like let's have a statue of this like civil leader from, I just, I don't know. I've never had that appeal. It might be cool in a museum where there's like history, you know, but like out in a city square, you know, I just, I don't, I don't feel any particular attachment to that. I'm probably not, you know, the, the majority opinion, because obviously this has been a very contentious issue, but I think like we need to recognize like street names have changed over the years. Statues have come up and gone down because people are no longer relevant or people are no longer needed as icons and new people come to influence this generation. And I don't think it's bad at all. If you look anywhere in the world, especially places that have been around a long time, 
and you add, like are the same statues up you know are the same you know i mean look at the coliseum it's like in ruins but and so many of those statues and things that were in it on it around it are gone have been moved to museums they're no longer people that we glorify and there have been statues raised of people who were dictators and people who were very evil and tyrannical and yes they should come down now when it comes to religious statues like thinking particularly of you know jay sarah um saint hunipero sarah um you know if, if you read a lot about him you know that he did a lot of uh, wonderful things for the native american community really fought for them really fought for their rights established the mission system in california however because he's associated with kind of like the christianization of native americans some native americans see that as a robbing of their native religion and culture even though it was well-intentioned that's how they see it. And so they look at him and people like him as an oppressive figure. Now, if you disagree with that, that's okay, but it doesn't change their experience. And so if there is a better person to have up, you know, or if they don't want that representing an area where they live, if that's not someone who uh, is admirable to them, I understand the anger behind it. I do think it'd be more fruitful to have a conversation rather than just go and tear it down. But I think probably for a long time, these conversations have been happening in a lot of these places and these people have been ignored or they've been silenced and they haven't been listened to. And it has welled up to an angry action because that's all they have left. Um, do I think it's okay that they're being taken down and things are being vandalized? No, I don't think crime is okay. You know, I don't think um, we should be going and doing that, but I don't think their reasons can be dismissed. I think we have to sit and listen. I um, I saw a couple, you've probably seen this too, a couple groups of Catholics or Christians around the country circling around statues, defending them. And I saw a lot of people praising that on different Catholic accounts and things like that. And I said, yeah, it's great that people will go um, defend something they hold near and dear in their faith. But I wonder how many of those people standing there defending the statue actually crossed over to where the protesters were that they were defending it against and said, can you tell me why you don't like this being up here? And just listened. And I wonder how many people from the protester side walked over and said, why would you defend this person? Like, I'm not trying to start an argument, but I, I'm really curious. Like, why do you admire this person? Because this is my experience. How many conversations happened? That really, this like, realization that the other side doesn't have purely evil intent, that both sides have some kernel of truth to them, have some good intention, really think that this is the best thing. And that if, you know, we one side is not completely right and both can't be completely wrong. And so where is that commonality? Why are we not having moments where we just say, hey, let me just sit and listen. Like, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in, but maybe what I believe could change or could deepen or could grow or stretch to include a lot of what you believe in. And it wouldn't be contradictory. That is a practice I think that we are severely lacking as Christians in this time. And part of that is because of this last point. Uh, well, first, the, the last thing I want to say about statues and, and churches, there was also some points about churches being vandalized and that it was, you know, uh, coordinated attacks, quote unquote. Um, if you re read the news about all of them, one was renovation. One was, you know, um, uh, someone off their schizophrenia meds. Well, you know, there's there's not a lot of it, if any, that I know of has been linked to actually any demonstration like this. Uh, there has been some defacement and damage of statues, um, particularly statue of Mary, um, statues of Mary, which is, you know, is awful. But 
the devil definitely wants those things to happen, but I don't think he wants them to happen simply to destroy the icon or the church. I think the devil wants it to spark hatred in our hearts for others. Because that's far worse than the destruction of a statue. A statue can be replaced. It can be restored. Something else can go there. It is not some cherished thing. The thing or person that that statue represents is not damaged. It's still there. It's still like the Virgin Mary is still the Queen of Heaven. St. Junipero Serra is still in heaven. He's still a saint. He's a canonized saint in the Catholic Church. He's not going to get decanonized. I don't even know if he can get decanonized. Does anyone know? Let me know. I'm not sure if that's ever happened. Um, anyways, but like those things still exist and Jesus is still victorious. And so we can't get so hyper-focused on this small thing and recognize like we're really creating a pathway for the devil to allow hatred, anger, fear to really seep into our hearts and pride, self-centeredness and division to really reign in our lives instead of love and communal understanding community growth beauty those things to 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 happen and a lot of this is due to my last point which is about media and politics there's been this over sensationalism division i mean you watch the i i if you know anything about critical thinking and logical fallacies like or if you don't go read go read about them stop what you're doing don't listen to any more media or watch any more news until you go learn what logical fallacies are and then watch the news and realize how every 5 seconds no matter what station left or right no matter what network you're watching they are being used like egregiously it's like insane and you can pick apart these arguments and say like, okay, I see how they're interpreting it that way, but you could also interpret it this way. And that's a logical fallacy. Like, what, what are you talking about? It's just so crazy. And we have to, I think as Christians, be very careful of false messianism, of looking at political figures, political parties, platforms, certain news outlets, um, pundits, speakers as Jesus. And I know we don't think they're Jesus, but we act like they are. We act like they can never make a mistake. Every argument that they have, every platform they have is defensible. Christians do this and they make republicanism sound like every single tenet of republicanism aligns in some way with Christianity. Guess what? It does not. It doesn't. If you're a Republican, you think it's the, the, the party of Christians. It's not. If you're a Democrat, you think it's the party of Christians. It's not. Newsflash, it's not. Like, no. In fact, most Republicans will pander to Christians saying that they're pro-life and only talk about abortion. But when it comes to things like adoption, maternity and paternity leave, end of life care, uh, capital punishment, they're on the other side. Like they, it's not a holistic life ethic. It's this one issue that they know is kind of the pet issue of a lot of Christians. And they use it to um, get a lot of people's votes and then do nothing else about it, you know, which is sad. And that in, in, a, in a way is very destructive. Um, and the liberal media, you know, they obviously support a lot of anti-life things or things that would be constituted as anti-life by Christian, you know, vocabulary. So anyway, I think like we need to, to be really aware of the fact that we cannot have a pet party or a pet candidate um, who never makes mistakes, who is always defensible. Um, that just doesn't exist. You are not electing Jesus and you are not electing the party of the church. Those things already exist. They are already without error. They're being guided by the Holy Spirit. They're perfect. They cannot, you know, like be overcome by any evil. They will persist until the very end. Republicanism, the Democratic Party, they will eventually be over. They were not here from the beginning of this country, uh, at least not in the form that they're in now. 
Um, and they will change and hopefully we'll have more parties than just two because all of our candidates have been awful. Um, you know, I don't know if you feel that way. Um, you know, part of me is just like, all right, let's just give it to Kanye. You know, let's just give it to Kanye next presidential term and just see what happens. Like what, what really worse could happen? But, um, I think we really need to learn, um, you know, those logical fallacies and see how, how that sensationalism is creeping in because, we can't stand as Christians for this persistent divisiveness and we really should not and cannot be the ones causing it. You can speak truth in such a way that it is not harsh, that it is not angry, that it is not divisive in a way that like belittles another person or makes them feel stupid or like their argument is idiotic. And that is 99% of what I've seen online, especially by very conservative or very Republican oriented Catholics um, who are very like gung ho about Trump or gung ho about conservatism um, and align all of that with Catholicism as if they're the same thing most of whom are men. Um, that's just what I've observed. I'm not saying that that's, you know, true in every instance, but it's just interesting that that is what I have seen. Um, and I think we just, we, me speaking as a white man in the church, in that category of person, speaking to my brothers saying, look, we can't do this anymore because you're hurting people and you don't realize it. And you're hurting the church and you don't realize it. And you're misrepresenting the ministry of Jesus and the teachings of the church without realizing it. And if you have questions about that, if you want to talk more about it, let me know. Um, but I think we really could grow, you know, and I'm not saying that the other side is without error at all. You know, there are definitely sinful things going on, things that we can't support as Christians going on all the other sides. But I know Christianity. <laughs> that's my context. And that's what I see in a lot of the conversations I see happening. I'm just really disappointed in a lot of Christians and a lot of influential Christians because of their hateful stance or their lack of stance during this time. Um, it's just, or they're just like ridiculous, like this is a conspiracy and the government's planting seeds in your brain and so you need to wear a tinfoil hat type of stuff. And it's just like, come on guys, you sound nuts. And do we really, do you really think that that's possible? Like we can't get it together in the world for any other issue. And yet just for a worldwide conspiracy about a virus, you know, yeah, we'll just all agree on that. Like that's, anyways, I'm back to the beginning again. So, what can we learn from all this very quickly? Something my spiritual director has been telling me over and over again is that we've been given the gift of time. I think it was him. Maybe it was my mentor. I don't know. But we've really been given the gift of time. And this is an opportunity to look at what our priorities are. And so I want you to ask yourself over the next week as you have heard this and maybe you're trying to think about where division exists in your heart and in your life, maybe how you haven't done enough listening, how you haven't done enough understanding or growth in a particular area, um, how maybe you've refused to acknowledge that you could be wrong or that you might not know everything about a given topic, um, and how maybe you've lost some of this time um, being so invested in what's going on that you've missed this gift of time. I want to ask you, what could the future of blank look like? What could the future of community look like? Because we have to be really intentional right now about connecting. About connecting with our family, connecting with our friends, our relationships. Um, that relationships right now are really have to be about intentional connection because they can't be about doing things together because there's not a lot of things to do together. 
Jesus chose who was near him. He chose only 12 people and out of those 12, three to be very close to him. He didn't have a close friendship with everyone, but he was very intentional with the relationships he did choose. And it wasn't simply about just doing so. We're going to go to synagogue together. It's going to be a blast. No, like he really invested in those people. So what does the future of community look like for you? I wonder what the future of dating is going to look like for those of you who are dating. You know, it's, uh, I think this is a real opportunity to cancel hookup culture because a lot of us haven't been able to be in physical proximity to other people. Um, and it'd be irresponsible if you were, you know? And so what does that look like to really have an intentionality and a romance brought back to dating, an actual idea of courtship and waiting and being patient for things? What could the future of family look like? We've really been given time to just be with family. I love this reminds me of in John chapter two at the wedding at Cana, where um, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And he says, woman, what concern of this is mine? My hour has not yet come. And what does Mary do? She just goes to the waiter as if Jesus is going to do it anyway. And he, what does he do? He listens. He listens. He allows himself to have a more intentional focus on that moment with his family as a result of being with his family, even though he put forth this kind of, you know, um, uh, denial initially. What could the future of your family look like? Could family dinners come back? Could there be less extracurriculars and sports because we're really valuing this time we have day in and day out together? Are we turning off screens because of the I know you probably hear, have Zoom fatigue um, from all the different things that you're trying to connect or FaceTime fatigue. Are we turning off social media and not having this fear of missing out that's been amplified because of the virus, but really just being with the people that you are near? And maybe you're really isolated. Maybe you live alone. What does that look like? Maybe there's neighbors you know, near you. You can both sit on your porches or your balconies, You know, people you can connect with daily. Um, you know, like I, I, I long for a return to kind of the 1950s ethic of community, but with a modern environment, you know, and, and the ability to have technological, you know, interactions and, you know, ease as we um, kind of be more flexible with school and with workplaces and life. But like, you know, the mailman, the mail carrier, um, the, the garbage guy, you know, all those, you know, those people who are constantly coming back and forth through our neighborhoods and our homes, on a weekly or sometimes daily basis, like bringing back that sense of like, Hey neighbor, you know, and, and that being part of the community, but definitely with family first, what could the future of school and education look like? Well, I hope it's more oriented toward, okay. Like we really have to ask ourselves, like, are these people actually learning? Like, are these people actually learning what they need to learn? Can we delete all of the unnecessary things? And can we really ask ourselves, are these people actually getting the education that they deserve and that they need? What could the future of work look like? People actually allowing for leave, maternity, paternity leave, um, all those different things that are so sought after and so necessary. Are people actually being given the opportunity to think about work in a flexible way, to think about um, what life could look like if maybe our, my whole life wasn't about work, maybe if work was just a part of my life and there was actually more flexibility there for me to prioritize family more and better. And what could the future of ministry in church look like? What could it look like if we were actually more 
invested in building up domestic churches at home and using technology in a focused way and well, not just moving everything online, because then we're just going to be in competition with everyone like we were before when we were in competition for in-person time. But to really ask, like, what do our parishioners need? How can we serve them with the sacraments and very focused ministry offerings for the whole parish? Not silo out every single age, but really invest in intergenerational and family-oriented ministry that is not happening during dinner time, you know, on the most busiest scheduled time during the week, you know, when kids have all this school and extracurriculars and stuff, but really maybe it's focused on the Sunday experience. You know, come to Mass and then your whole family will have some kind of experience, maybe separated a little bit or maybe all together, but something that applies to them. It's all thematic. It's all collaborative. The whole parish staff works on it. And then you go and live this out. And here's something you can take with you. Here's something you can do as a family that doesn't involve a screen, an intentional conversation, an, an activity, a resource, an experience that you can have together. I would love to see churches do that. That's what I've been advocating for at my parish, and I hope it happens. You've been given the gift of time. What will you do with it? What will it look like in your family, in your intentional relationships? And lastly, how does this time allow you to reflect on any fear or anxiety that you have? And ask, why do I fear this? Because when time is really given to us, we also tend to think about how little of it we have and how fragile that time is and how it could change in an instant. Why maybe do we lack trust in God if, if fear is something that we worry about? Because there may very well be no difference between me and the devil. And that may sound like a very crazy statement, but you know the devil knows that Jesus is God. The devil knows that he's the Savior. The devil knows the plan for all humanity. The devil knows that, that God is real and that God loves humanity and created them. And the devil knows in the existence of heaven and hell and purgatory and all these places. I can believe in all those things. And I'm no better than the devil. The difference is, do I give God permission? Do I give him my will? And do I actively choose to follow him and be in relationship with him daily? That is the small difference, but makes all the difference in how it's lived out. What does my faith look like during this time? How do I be very intentional about that? And then when it comes to all these things that are distracting and happening in the secular world, in the, in the world, how do I listen? How do I ask questions? How do I deepen my understanding? So what I want to offer you is a great saint that you can um, you know, ask for the intercession of. This is a saint who was very isolated in their own time, dealt with a lot of different... Um, uh, she's a patron saint. One of her patronages is people in exile. And that's what reminded me of her. Um, this is St. Kateri Tekakwitha. Um, she's the first Native American saint. She's known as the Lily of the Mohawks. Her name, Kateri, is actually uh, the the um, a form of Catherine. It's her baptismal name. Um, but she was a Mohawk Indian. And her name, actually, in Mohawk is pronounced Gaderi Degaguita. Gaderi de Gaguita, which I think is really beautiful. Um, she was born in 1656 in New York. Um, she was baptized at 20 years old, um, and she died shortly thereafter, four years later, only at the age of 24. She died very young. Um, and what's interesting is that um, her mother was actually a Christian Algonquin Indian, but she was taken captive by Iroquois Indians and was given as the wife to the chief of the Mohawk clan. 
Um, and it was that the Mohawks were the, um, there was a series of Indian tribes called the Five Nations. They were the fiercest, um, the most substantial. And so when Kateri was only four, she lost both her parents and her little brother in a smallpox epidemic. And it also left her uh, face very disfigured. It left her half blind. Um, she carried scars from that for her entire life. So she was adopted by her uncle and he, her uncle became chief of that tribe. Um, he didn't like the fact that Jesuit missionaries were coming in, but he, there was a peace treaty with France and they had to be in their villages as a result of that. Um, but even though Kateri was very afraid of her uncle, she started seeking instruction from these Jesuits and she refused to marry, um, uh, one of the other Mohawk Indians. Uh, and when she was 19, she finally took, um, the steps that she needed to take to start converting. And she was baptized on Easter Sunday, um, in the year, what year was it? Uh, 1676. Um, and so she now, because of that, was treated by the other Native Americans as a slave. So she's very isolated. She wasn't obviously fully, you know, um, integrated into a Christian life or experience because she was Native American, but her Native Americans, um, you know, uh, culture rejected her in many ways. Um, she wouldn't work on Sundays. Um, and so because of that, her tribe, uh, wouldn't feed her often that day, uh, cause she wasn't working for the, the food, uh, the benefit of the food. So, uh, she took that as a grace, um, you know, as a, a fasting, she, um, yeah, she really devoted herself to, um, the, the love of God and was really, um, trying to see each one of her people with dignity. Um, but she lived her life pretty much constantly in danger because, um, she was, like I said, a bridge between these two very, um, at odds communities. Um, and at the advice of a priest, she actually left, um, and began, uh, in the middle of a night and began a 200 mile walking journey to a Christian Indian village in St. Louis near Montreal. So not St. Louis, Missouri, but, uh, it's probably, um, or it's South St. Louis is what it is. It's the name of the city. So. She was there for three years and uh, was under the direction of um, a priest and an older Iroquois woman, uh, gave herself completely to the Lord, and uh, she took a vow of virginity at 23, which was a completely unknown act for a Native American woman to do because their future basically depended completely on being married. Um, and so she ended up finding a place uh, out in the woods where she could pray for an hour every day. Uh, she was even accused of meeting a man there. Like people were, were constantly out to get her, uh, out to paint her negatively. And so, um, she, um, she didn't know about religious life, um, because, um, um, my notes are kind of confusing here. Well, she didn't know about the religious life um, until uh, women visited Montreal. And so she was inspired by them and her and some friends wanted to start a community, but she was dissuaded. And so she basically just accepted her ordinary life. I really love that, that she just accepted like, okay, this is my life, which is something that many of us really, like have to do. We have to accept like, this is my ordinary life. This is what life looks like for me right now. And Kateri, pray for me because you've been through this and you've been through it in the midst of losing people from an epidemic and all these different things happening in your own life, being isolated, feeling alone. Um, I think she's a really great example for us. Um, she practiced uh, severe fasting and penance for the conversion of her nation, uh, something that we can do, um, practice fasting and penance for others, especially those that we disagree with. Um, and she died the afternoon before Holy Thursday. 
um, and people who saw her die say that her the scars on her face changed color and then her skin became like that of a child at the moment of her death. All of the lines from suffering and the pockmarks from uh, smallpox completely disappeared um, and she just had a little bit of a smile on her lips. Uh, and so she was beatified in 1980 and she was eventually canonized in 2012 as the first Native American saint. Really awesome saint. Uh, really glad that we're finally able to incorporate her into an episode. She's been on my list for a while. Uh, she was called the Lily of the Mohawks uh, and she has a really great story. So I encourage you to ask for her intercession. Thank you for hanging in there. I know this has been a long episode and I think, you know, I just want to encourage you. There's a lot out there, a lot going on, a lot to be negative and pessimistic about but jesus is still victorious and that we have a responsibility to bring that victory and hope to other people and how do we do that it's not in doing divisive things it's not in getting angry it's not in letting our fear take over or pride take over it's in listening and it's really asking ourselves if i've taken the opportunity to have this gift of time to really worry about my faith at home first personally and my family and my friends and really ask how am i being converted each day especially without relying on the sacraments and the crutch of that but really seeing how the lord wants to offer this as an opportunity for me to grow so that i can then grow in conversation conversations with others and bring that beauty, that gift of growth to others instead of speaking division and hiding behind walls of fear or misunderstanding. Try and remind yourself that everyone out there for the most part probably has good intentions and that there is truth in what they are saying and that we are far more benefited in listening first uh, and then having a conversation than in judging first and ending the conversation before it can even happen. So I want to encourage you in all of your efforts, all of your efforts to live out your faith, to speak boldly the name of Jesus and speak of hope in this time because it is a time where a lot of people need to hear it, but a hard time to proclaim it. And so um, I'm not an expert in any of those things. Feel free to disagree with anything that I said, but I hope it was helpful to you. And please know that we're praying for you. And until next time, we'll see you in the Eucharist. Bye.